Olá pessoal, tudo bem? Welcome to the Brazil Crypto Report podcast where we talk to the builders, entrepreneurs and influencers from across the Brazil crypto ecosystem. I'm your host Aaron Stanley and today I'm joined by Bruno Ramos de Souza, who's the head of new markets at Hashdex. Hashdex is among the largest crypto asset management firms in the world with around 400 million in AUM and it's one of the crown jewels, so to speak, of the Brazil crypto world. So today we're going to be learning more about Bruno Brazil's crypto ETF ecosystem and Hashdex's global ambitions as crypto adoption picks up worldwide. Uh, also, just quick housekeeping note, in light of some of the ongoing disputes between social media platforms, um, I would like to ask listeners just to make sure you are subscribing to Brazil Crypto Report on Substack, if you don't already, uh, just to ensure that you are receiving everything in the future. Uh, with that, I'd like to welcome Bruno to the show. E aí, Bruno, tudo bem? Tudo bom. A pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invite. Uh, as, as we were talking before, I've been a follower of newsletter since the beginning, so it's, it's great to finally chat a little bit. Absolutely. So why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into crypto? Yeah, uh, that's, yeah, we should always start there. So I'm, I'm originally a lawyer, uh, capital markets, I'm an A lawyer, worked in large firms uh, in Brazil and the U.S. Uh, since 2000. Uh, And then, you know, doing normal corporate work, but also a lot of banking work. Uh, so I had a little leg there on the banking regulation side. And of course, a couple of friends in Bitcoin in the early days, back in 2009, 10, and hearing these folks saying that, you know, Bitcoin is going to explode the whole system and things like that. So we had our disagreements there. I'd, I'd say they were right on the, the part that mattered, which was like, you know, prices will go up. <laughs> I, I had my... Uh, my lessons of humility there dealing with people that sometimes you think you're not from traditional markets, but the, the word seeing things. Yeah, we all and, had one of those friends. We all had one of those yeah, friends, right? Yeah. Like, yeah this, who's I, this crazy guy promoting this uh, internet? I had, yeah. I, I had a friend. He was a, he's a real OG of, of, you know, Brazilian Bitcoin investing, Artur Kosti. So he's a, he's, he's really uh, an anarcho degen, real, real crypto type. And he went all in in 2009, 10, and, and all in mean dropping his life and working for this. So it's a, it was is cool following that. But I think uh, you know things clicked for me in 2015 when I was working at Davis Polk. Uh, Davis Polk is one of the largest law firms in the world, probably the best uh, capital markets firm in the world for sure, uh, out of New York. And one thing we were working on was actually the Winklevoss uh, Bitcoin ETF filing. Uh, so, you know, when that appeared, uh, I said, okay, so this is real. I mean, this is, this is, you know, if we're going to have an ETF in the US, and then this means, you know, Bitcoin's here to stay. Uh, you know, fast forward <laughs> eight years, and it's, you know, spot ETFs are not there yet, but it's, uh, it's when it, it appeared to me that, you know, this is, this is worth paying attention, more attention to on a professional side, maybe. Uh, and then I, I came back to Brazil in 20, Uh, 16 and started, uh, you know, building a fintech practice in the law firm in Vedano at the time, uh, and just started having a lot of crypto clients. Crypto clients started coming up. Uh, fintech clients in general, very few people were working with fintech in Brazil at the time as lawyers. The main ones being the guys at Pinheiro Neto, uh, Bruno Baldicini, Fernando uh, uh, Donero, which are good friends of mine. And so uh, we, you know, I started developing that practice, and a lot of crypto stuff started coming. And that included everything from ICOs to, you know, exchanges to, to, you know, different types of clients from all over. 
until eventually in the end of 17, I, I met Marcelo Sampaio. Uh, Marcelo was a CEO, uh, one of the co-founders of Hashtags. And Hashtags was just an idea. So it was being formed uh, in his head and, and Bruno Caratori, the other co-founder. Uh, and I started developing with them the concept of what Hashtags would be, what the funds would look like first in an external capacity. And after a couple of months, I said, okay, let's, let's do this for real. And the funny thing is that Marcelo's brother-in-law was actually Ricardo Veirano, who was uh, the managing partner of Veirano Jogado. So he's my, my boss indirectly. And uh, Marcelo said, well, you know, but, but you're leaving Rick. I said, that's, that's good. Rick is a good friend. So, uh, and he understood he's actually an investor of ours. Uh, and, it was, uh, and it's been a cool ride. So it's been since early, early uh, 2018. Uh, so when I joined the firm, it was actually just... Um, just really the, the three of us there plus, plus plus a couple of people and uh uh literally like there was no even the entity was just being formed so, so I was, i'm here from day one we can call it like that and then we started bringing in the new partners and uh and then yeah then, then the ride started uh and we always had the idea if you look at our our seed deck so this is you know we raised uh a venture capital money back in that early 2018 and you look at the deck it was um crypto ets brazil that's what it said it's uh, it's like essentially uh, crypto is here to stay uh this is a major asset class uh this uh investment in crypto will be done in law three etfs etfs is the largest uh you know type of investment product that rolls in the world and brazil's massive and we have an angle in brazil so you know uh we we started with that of course always with an idea of the U.S. too. And, and actually the first funds that we built were, were this is actually the, the fund that was converted into, into the ETF in Cayman and Bermuda. Uh, this was a U.S. fund. It's a Cayman fund, but with a U.S. offer. So it was already aimed at the U.S. market with the idea of converting that fund into uh, a proper ETF uh, in the U.S. when the time came. So we worked again with Davis Polk uh on building that davis Polk was working for a lot of the the firms at the time including i think grayscale genesis a lot of things were going through their death so we had some good experience on their side uh and then eventually in 2019 we realized that things in the us weren't going to pick up because of regulation uh and then in discussions uh you know through davis Polk with, with the sec with jay clayton at the time it became very clear that you know, an ETF, a crypto ETF wasn't coming anytime soon. That was very good for us because it allowed us to, to really focus on Brazil, which we had some good assets, you know, a big, a big part of it being that all of you know, the founding team was Brazilian. Uh, and then we had relationships in the market. And then, then, of course, we started building the local funds and 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 getting distribution to them, which is a key thing in, in the fund industry. It's like, yeah. You know, it's not to fill the dreams. It doesn't mean that if you build it, <laughs> people will come. You actually need the channels to to sell these. And then, so that was the journey that in, in 2019, and always working with the ETF, always around the, the idea of the ETF, the ETF, the ETF, uh, until we finally got to Hashem. But I will pause there because otherwise I'll, I'll keep talking until we get to 2023. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it, thank you for that background. That, that's really great context there. And, um, no, it's funny, even since you were talking, I was thinking, like, I feel like I have a lot of similarities with you in terms of uh, kind of entering into crypto because I actually, my, yeah. my first ever 
um, well, actually, my, the first article I ever did about crypto is in 2013. It's just kind of like a, like a, Hey, what is this type of thing? Uh, hmm. stop paying attention to it for a couple of years after that. And then 2016, I actually did, um, like a, a big profile piece for, for the financial times for one of their like weekend magazines on the Winklevoss twins, Bitcoin and their kind of their Bitcoin ambitions. Right. Yeah. So I got, I got asked to do this story and I was like, all right, sure. Why not? Uh, you know, so I ended up, um, you know, spending some time with, with, uh, you know, probably about like 90 minutes on the phone with, with, with the Winklevoss, or it was actually one of the Winklevoss twins. At that, at that time they, they came like, they were inseparable, right? Like he, like, yeah. he was, but I, <laughs> I got one of them. I think, I think Cameron was sick. So I got Tyler. Yeah. So, yeah. um, but he spent a lot of time with me on the phone and he was, I mean, I came, I came in with a lot of skepticisms about like, uh, you know, uh, I'm not really sure about this thing. I'm not really sure about the Winklevoss twins, you know, they yeah. have, they're not, they have, you know, mixed reputation. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I came out of that conversation like, wow, there's something here I should be paying attention to. Yeah. Uh, and then the reception to the article when it finally came out was, was like, unlike anything I'd ever, I'd ever seen. Like it was, uh, we realized quickly that the Winklevoss twins were were controversial characters uh, in the crypto world because it started getting all yeah. these messages from people like, why would you write about these guys? But yeah. um, but anyway, but I, I do credit sort of the Winklevoss twins for, you know, kind of sending me down the rabbit hole, so to speak, of Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, you know, kind of I, I, I covered a bit of some of the, their early their, their I think I covered their first <laughs> their first Bitcoin ETF rejection in like March 2017 or something. Um, and then obviously things haven't really changed yeah, much yeah. since then, I suppose. But, um, but anyway, so yeah, uh, a lot of, you know, I hold them in high respects as far as, you know, kind of red pilling yeah. and this whole yeah. subject matter yeah. here. Um, so maybe let's kind of, <laughs> you know, let's, let's dive in a bit more into, um, like the, I'd like to just kind of tap into like the difference between the U like, like in the U S when we talk about. Bitcoin ETFs, it's really kind of, it's been the same conversation for like 10 years. Like, you know, all these yeah. people will, you know, submit applications for a spot ETF. The SEC will deny them saying that there's too much, uh, you know, manipulation and the spot price of the asset and there's not enough kind of surveillance tools. And, and that they kind of give the same boilerplate, you know, answer basically to everybody's applications. Um, meanwhile, you look at, um, uh, you look at there's other countries like Canada that just that that a couple of years ago uh, launched their own uh, or there's a couple of Bitcoin spot ETFs that launched there. Yeah. You have other yeah. places in Europe that have launched. And then you have Brazil where you look at Brazil and you have uh, there's obviously the ETFs that you guys have. Um, and there's several other companies and there's at least like 10 or 11 of these digital asset ETFs trading on the B3 exchange right now, yeah. which is yeah. Brazil's yeah. main exchange. And not only and these are not just like fringe products, like these are among the top, I think, you know, of the top 10 most popular ETFs on the exchange, yeah. like the top, like five uh, of them are crypto. Yeah. So like what is going on? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, it, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, so just like what's going on in Brazil that makes these products like so viable and popular compared to like, you know, what we're seeing in the US and, and, and elsewhere. Yeah. So. So going back there to, you know, we had the funds, uh, we had distribution with the fund, with the banks, and uh, and we were looking for ways to build ETF, right? Uh, the ETFs, they didn't really fit the the rule, which is rule 359 from, from the, the CVM. One major difference between Brazil and the US is that you have 
in the differences between common law and civil law, you have a very clear rule around ETF issuance in Brazil, which is different from how things work in the US. So you have a very clear rule from 2002. Uh, and then, you know, we looked at it, you couldn't really fit uh, uh, crypto into, into the rule, right? But uh, then we started looking at, you know, listing uh, the the fund that we had in Cayman and other places, and then the conversation started with Bermuda Stock Exchange, uh, and having a, a listing, even if it's an exchange that has a smaller volume, is very important because it add it puts you in a different bucket in terms of allocation from investors, and you know if it's publicly traded, they can probably invest in that. If it's you know a more you know hedge fund type vehicle, they might not. So we said, okay, this this can be interesting, and then. Uh, you know, connecting the dots, I looked at it, and this was my my project internally. Uh, so we had a you know, lot of discussions around this. I said, you know, if uh, if we can, um, and I knew at the time there was a precedent that had been opened by BlackRock, which was uh, BlackRock when they launched uh, IVV uh, Brazil, IVVB, uh, they created a, a feeder fund structure, which is an ETF of an ETF. So IVV Brazil essentially buys IVV in the US. Uh, and this was a precedent from 2013, I think, uh, with several long discussions uh, from the board of the CVM around, uh, around that. So there was a, a good precedent there and not by chance, actually but, well, by luck too, but you know these things that the universe ends up helping. Uh, we were working with Piero Neto uh, at this and it was Piero Neto who had done uh, the structure for BlackRock too, uh, with Caio, who for me is like the best ETF lawyer in Brazil. Uh, so Caio also became a good friend because we had you know, several years there in the trenches <laughs> trying to put this product out there. So you know, talked to Caio, talked to, to Fernando there, Donero, and said, okay, can we do an ETF in Brazil that buys an ETF abroad? I think this fits the rule. Uh, and let's say, yeah, let, let, we we all think this fits the rule. Let's talk to the B3 if B3 would be willing. And then B3 say, yeah, you know, if you fit the rule, uh, this might happen. And then we went to the CVM. And then we started a long journey with the CVM. This this took two, two and a half years, maybe, of back and forth going and saying, you know, this is the structure I want to build. I'm following your precedent. I'm doing this everything right. Uh, and the first discussion is there with Daniel Maeda, who's in charge of, of fund supervision, let's call it, there in the CVM. Uh, he asked about, well, why not Bitcoin? And I said, well, because we believe crypto investing should be done through indices. You know, there's a lot of discussion around Bitcoin because that's how it came from the US. Uh, but as in any other asset classes and for ETFs in general, uh, basket products and index products are more interesting. If, if the market trends towards a single asset, the index will reflect that. If you look, look at Hash11 today, we can see it's very concentrated on Bitcoin and ETH because that's where the market is. And if the market becomes just Bitcoin, it will be 100% Bitcoin. And if the market, you know, disperses itself, and, and we've seen this movement uh, a few times, concentration in Bitcoin, concentration or, or, or dilution in other assets, right? So the concept was, was very, you know, well-received. And of course, then we started going into meetings and meetings and meetings with B3, with the risk committees, uh, uh, until uh, finally, uh, so end of 2021, we have the product in, in the, 
uh, in Bermuda trading, one thing that we needed to do was actually transfer the index and create a new index. Uh, initially, we had created the index internally. It was the hashtag uh, digital assets index. We passed a lot of that IP to NASDAQ and, uh, and co-created with them the NASDAQ crypto index. And then that process, so that process took like a year and a half uh, because for Brazilian ETFs, you can't uh, self-index, so you can't be managing your own index, right? Uh, so started trading there in, was approved in Bermuda late 2021, started trading early 2022. Very important, first crypto ETF in the world. Uh, sometimes people say uh, Canada, Canada started trading after uh, our ETF and I'm very proud of it because uh, I was obsessed with this thing. I woke up every morning for two years saying, we're going to have the first crypto ETF in the world. We're going to have it. And then we launched Bermuda. And a couple of months later, we, we launched uh, Hash11. It was chaos to launch. Uh, B3 had several operational issues because we, we chose to do something different, which is an IPO of the ETF uh, with, with the big banks leading with Genial, uh, BTG, uh, Itaú uh, leading the syndicate, and then all other major banks essentially distributing the product. Uh, and, and then finally, this was launched in April 2021, so it's completing uh, two years now. So I said, uh, actually, the, the one was early, yeah, so early early 2021, two years from Hash 11 now. So why did I take this whole route to say, you know, uh, the truth is, and without being, I think, really putting credit to, to where the industry is, to, to where it's due in, in terms of the industry development, the market is as it is today in Brazil, uh, mainly because of hashtags. Uh, and right after that, of course, you had uh, uh, Kehi launching their, their Bitcoin ETF. We launched our Bitcoin ETF. Then we launched our Ether ETF. They launched the Ether ETF. And then you saw the other issuers come in. Uh, uh, but the truth is that the long process that, was, that, that we undertook with the CVM is what opened the doors for the other ETFs to come. Uh, and uh, and it, it's... You know, it's, it's good that we were actually the first to launch. And, and that's what led to Hash11 having the volume and the size that it has. And, and a little bit of that winner takes most, uh, uh, you know, scheme took over because, you know, any other issuer launching an ETF, a crypto ETF in Brazil today will struggle against just the size that Hash11. And Hash11 is the second largest ETF in Brazil in number of investors. And it's on on path to become the, the first. Uh, and in terms of volume, it's almost every day top five. In big crypto days, it's like top three, top two. This is this is something that doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. So it's a it's a incredible phenomenon. And and uh, we like to reinforce it because uh, people don't pay enough attention. And and I'm I'm speaking not not from uh, like underdog mentality, Brazilian you know, complex Vidalata. It's just uh, Brazil has the most developed crypto fund ecosystem in the world. There's not a, a country that comes close to it. You know, Canada has spot ETFs for Bitcoin and ETH. That's it. We, we you know, we have, and then, and then we, I mean, hashtags and the other issuers. So we have six ETFs in Brazil, four of them basket strategies, several other issuers with basket strategies too, uh, with a clear index approach from the CVM. So you come to Europe, for instance, their ATPs, their, so their debt products are not equity products. That makes a difference. They're not real uh, ETFs, although they work very similarly. Uh, so the underlying assets, they tend to be approved on a case-by-case -case basis from Bafin in Germany, 
from from six in 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 in, uh, in Switzerland. So the index approach that the CVM has, which comes from the, the normal ETF rule, uh, that's very advanced, and it was applied to crypto as it would be applied to equities. So if is the index solid? Does it work? I I'm not here. You know, CVM's rule is I'm not here to say if Algorand's okay and Cardano is not. Like if the index rules are sound, the index is approved, uh, the product can be created, uh, and and the CVM. Is the best regulator for crypto funds in the world. Uh, it's there, there's there's and it's largely due to to Daniel Maeda and his team and 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 actually the commissioners there. So it's a it's a real cool story in that sense that uh, we are leaders in the world in that sense. Of course, given the size of the Brazilian market, uh, it's you know some of these ETFs are smaller if you compare it to just like the largest uh, Bitcoin ETF in, in Canada, but Hash11 is still the third largest crypto ETF in the world. So, you know, it's it coming from Brazil and Brazil's a, you know, a 40th of the size of uh, the US market, for instance, right? Um, so what, you know, wh where, what do we have? I think that it's different in the end when you look at all this. Uh, a big part of our thesis has been that crypto investments will be done in the long run, mainly through regulated products and vehicles, just because uh, it's the way things work for other asset classes. You know, if you're a pension fund, uh, you can't really buy crypto directly. This is the case for, for most, but not even that. If you go to a hedge fund, a normal hedge fund or, or family office, they have a hard time buying crypto directly and dealing with everything. And you don't have to talk about crypto. If you look at gold and see what happened with gold prices and volumes in gold after GLD, which was the first uh, gold ETF to come out, uh, the market just tripled in size. And this is because uh, gold is an interesting comparison there because you have physical, you have synthetic, you have custody issues around gold ETFs. Some things are very similar to crypto. And most of, of gold investment is done not through buying gold bars. It's done through buying ETFs. Right. Uh, if you go to uh, multi-asset products and index products, even more like the, the, the work of managing uh, just, you know, uh, crypto infrastructure. This is not for amateurs. <laughs> and we saw what happened last year. Uh, and, and, you know, a, a silver lining for us, of course, it's it's uh, it's always bad Bitcoin dropping and the market melting as it was. Uh, we hashtags had absolutely zero issues, zero issues. And and we saw competitors here in Europe uh, losing money with FTX, uh, having FTT or Luna, Terra Luna ETPs blow up, go to zero. And imagine like telling a, a client that, you know, your products worth zero now. So, uh, and this happened not by chance. It was by actual uh, structure that we have in risk management saying, oh, we can't add this. So, you know, these tokens were never in any of our baskets and, and so on and so forth. So um, I think the, the story in Brazil gets very interesting. When you look at regulated products, you look at our volumes in the in the ETFs and you compare it to the exchange to the exchanges. In most months, we're only behind Binance in terms of volume. So that means that Brazilian investors, uh, you know, they're not going primarily through Coinbase or Mercado Bitcoin or Foxbit or you know, some of the other very good exchanges that we have in Brazil, a lot of the market is going through ETFs. And why is that? Because my father, for instance, he would never open an account in Binance. 
he has, you know, he has shares in, <laughs> in actual Avenue ETFs because he's my father. Uh, but you get the sense, you know, a regular investor, you know, for us, we're crypto savvy, managing private keys, uh, understanding what's a good exchange, what's not. I think, you know, look at FTX, who would say that, oh, this is going to blow up from, you know, this is, you had all the signs of uh, validation from, you know, large VCs, uh, U.S. authorities, and so oh, this, so oh, this is looks like a big solid exchange for retail. That's what's happening, right? So uh, going into products that you can invest, and you have you you have layers of regulation from uh, depending on the country, the central bank or the securities authority, the stock exchange, and and banks, the gatekeepers. You know these things they make sense for a lot of investors. A lot of investors, and and uh, and for the majority of investors, actually. And this is not to discard, you know, not your keys, not your coins. Is something that is true. Uh, and you know, something I always like to say is that there's space for different types of investments, uh, for different approaches to to crypto. Uh, should you have a ledger uh, with Bitcoin on it, and you know, in a vault, if something happens, yeah, sure, that makes sense. Uh, if you're an average investor and you're trying to protect from, you know, uh, what are you trying to protect from the government coming in, take your money? That's one thing. That's a very uh, long tail scenario. Uh, most investors are not concerned about that. They want exposure to one, two percent of the portfolio to to an asset that they think will will make sense, right? So uh, uh, there's space for both forms of of exposure, and I think that's a cool story about, uh, you know. The ETF market, the crypto ETF market in Brazil in general, is how it yeah. opens up the possibilities for people to access, right? Well, I think that that's a really interesting, interesting point because one of the kind of you know debates that's been had in the U.S. like you know ad nauseum for the last ten years now is you know over like the merits of a is a Bitcoin ETF even a good idea, right? Where you have some people that are taking like, oh, it opens up you know new investment opportunities for a new market of people that wouldn't otherwise, you know, kind of citing you know the gold example that you mentioned, and then you have kind of like the Bitcoin, you know, kind of maximalist like curmudgeon types who are like, this is stupid. Um, if you want Bitcoin, just go buy Bitcoin, hold it yourself. Like, there's no reason to buy an ETF that tracks Bitcoin where uh, there's the you know there's the custody risk and there's the um, you know the government might take it from you. And the asset manager is going to take a cut of the return. And, yeah. you know, and it's just like another financial project, you know, product to kind of, you know, screw over the little guy or, or something like that. Right. So yeah. what you're saying is the experience in Brazil really proves out that like it, the, the, having these ETFs really does sort of open up an entirely new market of investors in this asset class that would not invest otherwise, just you know, for the reasons that you mentioned, like, OK, I don't I'm not technical enough. I don't trust myself enough to like hold this stuff on a ledger. Um, I don't want to open an account on Binance. That's too complicated. Uh, I just want to kind of go through my, you know, traditional uh, brokerage account where I, that I use to manage my other investments. Um, so, but so you basically, it's, it's kind of validating that, that these, these two worlds can coexist essentially. And, and yeah. they're not, they're not, they're not cannibalizing one another. Yeah, no, no, they're, they're complementary. And I think it's very short-sighted, uh, I wouldn't even say it's short-sighted. It's it's ignorance sometimes, you know, that 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 sort of criticism because it's failing to understand how markets work. Uh, and you know, and, and the impact that the the impact in liquidity and and in Bitcoin prices that having these products has. You know, if you're a maxi 
and you want Bitcoin at the moon, the best thing you can root for is the U.S. spot ETF, right? The best thing you can root for is for, you know, sovereign funds to be comfortable allocating into the asset class. And make no mistake, these sovereign funds, they're not going to have their in-house team managing keys directly because, you know, this is one of gazillion investments that they have. Uh, and, and, you know, if you're either going through a service provider like, you know, Fireblocks or Copper or somebody like that, or you're going through an ETF manager, uh, what you're doing is outsourcing a big part of risk management in tech that you don't feel that you have the time or the technical expertise to do. Uh, you know, we have a full-blown team that lives and breathes and is paranoid around custody risk management. Right? Okay, so if you look at our custodians over time, they have changed. We have adapted. We have created procedures that didn't exist before. Right. So uh, if you look at, for instance, the way we manage uh, the relationship with with uh, custodians. There are certain things that that you know Coinbase uh, Institutional has now that were created for us by us with them because we said we need this and this and that because we think this is the way to do it uh, and this is benefiting the whole ecosystem globally because you know we, we took the time to to develop with them uh, so you know it's this is not uh, you know you can't minimize the work involved in managing private keys and 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 having the risk of ruin. And, you know, if you want to be off the grid and off the system, I think Balaji, Balaji has an interesting, you know, one in one of those podcasts, he said something like, you have like Chinese capital, woke capital and crypto capital, right? So, so you know, the Chinese capital, you know, you're under, you know, Chinese rule or whatever. Uh, woke capital, it's, you know, if you don't obey the rules, you'll be canceled and this and that, and you have to you know, follow, U.S. Uh, guidelines and everything, and and crypto capital is your self-sovereign, right? Uh, uh, the way he positioned it there is interesting. Say, you know, if you want to go to any extreme, the extremes are bad. You know, if you're, you know, you become fragile. If, if you're way too much into world capital, U.S. capital, you're subject to everything that comes with U.S. Let's put a cancellation in the broader sense, uh, but but you know, if you fall into the bad side of U.S. government. You know, you don't want to be Arthur Hayes or you don't want to be maybe what's happening with CC right now. Like if you get canceled by the U.S. government, that's the real cancellation that matters. <laughs> you know, it's not social media cancellation. That, that can really create problems for you globally. Right. You don't want to be under Chinese capital, too, and, and, and the risk of being under the PCC. And with crypto, you know, if you go to the full self-sovereign route, you know, what's left is being in a farm, growing your own livestock, growing your own crops. Uh, having solar panels and being totally off the grid. You know, that's very valid if you're a survivalist, if you're from Montana, if you're, it's like, like, that's a valid path. That's not the path for the majority of people, right? So uh, I think, uh, you know, of course, these, and, and these fights, I think, uh, you know, one way of, of, of separating these things, taking just a step back, uh, when we look at crypto, uh, let's let's call it, uh, not only crypto ETF issuers, but companies that are uh, building bridges between TradFi and, and, and crypto, and of course, including hashtags investments. The way I personally look at it is like who's legit and who's not uh, in the, on the crypto side. Because on the finance side, that's easy, right? Uh, the, the financial markets themselves will do it. And, and by legit, I mean who's concerned 
about crypto for the long run and who understands the potential of crypto, what it means and why it should be protected, right? So we establish a big difference when I look at it, you know, a crypto ETP issuer in Europe or a Bitcoin futures ETP ETF issuer in the US. Uh, like, is this guy the right side of the trenches or he's, or is he just, you know, in there for the fast buck because he saw an angle and, and he, you know, he moved fast and got a nice product out there. Uh, we are on the same side of that fight. Uh, it's protecting, and that goes from everything to pushing regulation in the right direction to uh, preventing, you know, self-hosted wallets from being banned. Uh, and, 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 you know, all of these things, they tie up together. And folks like us, like we have real importance because we have transit with the regulator that sometimes a pure crypto, you know, uh, very anarchic type won't have. So as an ecosystem, we need to be together and understand that things will merge. I think that, that's what's missing in the thing. If, you know, going a little bit outside of Bitcoin and just looking at, you know, Ether or, or other, you know, uh, blockchains that can be used for, for more things, uh, you know, the financial infrastructure of the world will be integrated into a single thing. Uh, this, this scheme of silos that we have today, it will disappear. Uh, you know, you'll be able to trade 24 seven, all asset classes, all exchanges, and these limitations that exist now, they'll, they'll be gone, right? Uh, and we need to make sure that we protect open blockchains, we, we protect code of speech, uh, we protect people's ability, uh, you know, to not have their money seized. And, and this involves knowing how the game is played and not just staying in a corner saying, okay, that like, oh, those, you know, those trad five guys, uh, you know, let them, they're, they're ruining Bitcoin. Uh, you know, it's so I think, you know, there's 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 a, an interesting discussion there to be had. And, and, you know, we know the folks. I mean, I one book I read that had a great impact on me and that we sort of have everybody that comes into hashtags read it is Crypto by by Stephen Levy that from the, the Wire article back in the day, uh, which the book st stops around 2001, right, too. So he's not talking about crypto assets. He's talking about cryptography. And, and the fight around cryptography and the fight between the U.S. government and the early cryptographers from the late 60s, early 70s, uh, the NSA, up until you know, the, the Internet Act, uh, how this played out, how this is playing out again, uh, and why cryptography is our last line of defense against authoritarian governments. And I, you know, if we can drive the discussion towards that, that's what I, what I think matters the most. And I think that's what's starting to pick up in some places. This is obvious in, in Argentina. Uh, you know, I lived in Argentina for several years. I have several friends there. All my Argentinian friends are crypto fiends, uh, traders. They're, they know what they're doing. And these are not these are not like finance people or tech people. They're yoga teachers, athletes. They're, there's nothing to do with finance, but everybody in Argentina is an effects trader. So when, when Bitcoin comes along, yes, we'll trade this. Uh, if you know if you go to Argentina, a friend will tell you, bring me AIs, bring me dollars, bring me anything you have, I'll buy them from you. It's been like that for years, right? So uh, in Brazil, we have a sense of that too because we had color, we know what it means to have you know, your savings account seized. Uh, in the US, after Silicon Valley Bank, I saw this discussion becoming a little bit stronger saying, hey, oh, so, Money in the bank actually is like a loan to the bank and this money might disappear. And 
uh, yeah, <laughs> it's like, uh, that's how the system works. Uh, so, so having an asset that doesn't disappear and that you, that you can store it yourself. And, you know, I think that's, uh, that's a very cool thing. And there's, you know, since we're talking about books, one book that's off the radar, uh, but there's a, a, a Brazilian edition of it. And, um, and it's really cool. It's called Demandables, Demandable Family, Familia Mangible in Portuguese, Demandables from Lionel Scherber that wrote, uh, we need to talk about Kevin, that movie, uh, the movie about like the psycho kid. So uh, the Mandibles talks about a scenario in which the U.S. goes bankrupt and the rest of the world is kind of fine and the U.S. explodes. And it's like, it follows like a family from Brooklyn, like kind of wealthy uh, and they're screwed because they don't know how to manage things. And there's a teenager kid and he's the smartest one. Uh, but the U.S. dollar essentially went, went bankrupt and you have a global currency called Banker. Uh, it's, it's excruciating for us to read it because it's, it sounds so real. You look at it and say, oh, this really could happen, right? So uh, these things, they seem far-fetched until they happen. Uh, and if they're far-fetched for Switzerland, for sure they are. Uh, they might seem far-fetched for the UK or for, for the US. It doesn't mean that you won't have inflation. Uh, and inflation, it, it, you know, it creeps towards you. Uh, and it comes, and after it starts, I think Luis Nunes from Corpus had a good a good phrase like maybe a year ago. He said, you know, dealing with inflation is like playing soccer downhill. It's, if the starts go, the ball starts going down. Uh, and this is what U.S. economists sometimes miss. It's like it's not like that. Saying things will come back because like, it's not like that. This is you know Brazil had that nightmare for decades. Uh, so I don't think you know Tupolaji is bad. I don't think the uh, hyperinflation is coming. I, I think that's a, it's a very clear publicity stunt. He even sort of said it as a publicity stunt. Uh, but inflation at, you know, real inflation at 20, 30% a year, sometimes you're seeing the rate at 6%, but actually on the street, what you're feeling is 20, 30. Uh, that has an effect on the population that can't be, uh, you know, uh, it, it's it's hard, very hard to measure. And Europeans and Americans are not prepared for it because uh, you don't have the memory of how to deal with that, right? Yeah, I think it's a great, I think it's a great, really, really great point in the sense that, uh, you know, post SVB, I think it was, I mean, SVB probably, Silicon Valley Bank probably provided, you know, more education about the nature of fractional reserve banking to the American public mm. than any, you know, economics, uh, high school class or college class or anything ever did, right? <laughs> Um, yeah, because it's like we've ever, you know, it's just you put money in the bank and it's just there, right? You don't think of it yeah. as, oh, this might be just gone yeah. someday. And and I think and now even you're seeing all these discussions about, uh, you know, in the in the the 1930s in the Great Depression when when Franklin Delano Roosevelt they they started seizing gold, issued an executive order to seize people's gold, and and this is like kind of one of these obscure facts of history that like only you know kind of like crypto libertarian you know sort of diehard enthusiasts knew about before and yeah. now it's it's becoming like pretty common you're seeing there's a lot more people online talking about it right yeah, yeah um yeah. you know all the the stage is all is, is setting for like crypto to really have its moment here which kind of leads me to my next question which would be about with your your products in brazil um just like a little bit more color on like who is actually you know, buying these things? Like who are the yeah. the folks that are investing here? Do you think that you're seeing the the demand that you're seeing because of this kind of inflation hedge um, notion? Or is this is this maybe a function of the fact that 
um, maybe crypto is just kind of this new thing that I mean, Brazilians are obviously very like early adopters. So like, hey, instead yeah. of buying a, you know, a, a, you know, an oil or, a, you know, a commodities ETF, like just kind of yeah. traditional thing. Let's try yeah. something new and a bit riskier. Um, yeah. Or or is it maybe kind of a, a factor of, um, you know, just capital markets in Brazil aren't as deep as as in other markets. Right. So there's just not I mean, relatively these crypto ETFs are doing quite, quite well. But, you know, just in, in terms of like absolute numbers, there's just not as much demand for some of these other more traditional products. So maybe yeah. the crypto products, you know, just look better on paper just because there's not as much demand for the other stuff. Yeah. But we'd love to yeah. just kind of get a sense for like what's where's the demand coming from and what's the yeah. kind of the, the investment thesis behind it. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting because it's very country specific and it has a lot to do with culture and actually the state of, let's say, investment or investor education and, and development. Right. So it's. Um, it's changing and, and we were benefited from a couple of big waves that we caught in terms of what was happening in Brazilian capital markets, financial markets uh, in the past few years, right? So uh, our, our investors today are maybe 70% uh, retail or 65 and 30, 35 uh, institutional. Uh, institutional is uh, you know, essentially family offices and hedge funds. Uh, and a lot of this essentially mostly through hash 11 because uh, large investors, they, they tend to go through the large products because they need more liquidity. Uh, so, you know, I can talk about some you know, stuff that was public, you know, uh, Virgi, which is, you know, probably the most famous traditional uh, fund in Brazil had, had for, you know, for a long time, a big position in hash 11. Luis Stuberger, who's a legend, mentioned that in some interviews. Uh, so, and, and that was very, you know, work that we did on a very, uh, uh, really picking each of these funds and sitting down with them and explaining the thesis. And if you go to the professionals, it's the, you can even, even, you can either have like the long-term term thesis of, uh, you know, there's space for this as an asset, if central banks continue doing this, if you continue printing money, uh, that's what Luis Stolberger said, uh, in an interview, he said, you know, you might wake up a day and have a, a global plan of color, which would be, you know, seizing assets and just resetting the debt. Let's put it like, like into Ray Dalio's terms, you know, just have a, a big reset of the debt uh, and you do that, people suffer. So uh, there's that side, but there's also like directional bets and trades on the short term or technical analysis. And, and, and I think hedge funds in Brazil, some hedge funds are very well versed in, in crypto already. Uh, to be able to look at you know price action and say okay this is this might be going this and that so they can they can sort of read the signals already I'd say more than than maybe hedge funds in other places so there's that profile of investor and there's there's retail in general right and, and then when you go to retail through the ETFs I think there are a couple of things first really it was the ingenuity that we had of of doing IPOs of these uh, this was something that unheard of I mean I I, I talk about it here in Europe or in the US. It's how we did an IPO with ETF and people are like, how? Like, how did you do that? Uh, and, but the greatest thing about the IPO is actually the bank talking to the client saying, this is a product that exists and, and uh, you know, take a look at it. Uh, what benefited us is that first, we were in a wave of ETF uh, knowledge growing in Brazil. When we launched Hash 11, I think it was the 22nd, ETF. Today, there's probably, I don't know, 780. Uh, there, there's a 
more than quadruple, like triple or quadruple in a couple of years, uh, because large banks in Brazil didn't pay attention to ETFs because you had the you know, mutual funds, uh, normal uh, normal investment funds, uh, charging you know two and twenty uh, with you know big fees for the banks or issuers or big rebates for the banks. Uh, and if you go back a few years before Shispe came along, essentially all the funds were coming from big banks, and you had very little independent asset managers gathering you know or collecting some 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 funds directly from the public right she stick comes along and you, you go into an open platform model bringing folks more into investment funds and then uh the next stage is have obviously etfs when you look at it say oh etfs are beating hedge funds and they're charging a lot, lot less and it's transparent and it has liquidity so it's just a better product in 99 percent of the cases uh so uh, that education that you know we pushed along, but at the same time you started seeing Itaú really doubling down on their efforts, BTG coming with their first ETFs, uh, Shispe coming with their first ETFs. So we started seeing a movement towards, hey, ETFs should also be here in the shelf of products. So these things they fit in together. Uh, and if you go back into e even prior to the ETFs, when we had just uh, the funds, this journey of Brazilian investors going into out of fixed income into variable income and understanding investing in stocks and social media influencers talking about finance and diversification and asset classes. We went into that same pack. It's like, it wasn't like people have been investing in stocks for 50 years, like it is in the US. And now I just bring in crypto. So what, what is this? I don't understand this. They were having, investors were having their education at the same time. They were talking about equities, gold, commodities, you know, real estate funds, a lot, crypto. Uh, so there was a lot of openness to understanding the asset class. They said, oh, so this is another, oh, how do you sum it up? Oh, it's very volatile, but it can go really up and really down. As oh, okay, so, so this is crypto's thing for people. Uh, because it's not like people really understand how real estate funds work or how, you know, Hedge funds, you you have very little transparency. You don't know what what you know the investors are, are, are the the asset manager is putting money into, right? So there's a a certain leap of faith that the investor does, and says, okay, I'll trust this asset manager. I think this asset class makes some sense. Uh, and we were a big part of that journey just by providing a lot of educational materials, explaining crypto, explaining crypto, blah blah blah, blah what crypto is, what it means. Uh, I think a good success that we had, and I, I think. Uh, compared to to the way people explain it here in Europe or in the U.S., I, I like our pitch better because our pitch it looks like Andreessen Horowitz the, a pitch in terms of what you know what open blockchains mean. This is a new layer of the internet. Uh, this is what it does. So you go beyond just central banks, and that's all, which can get you can get into a muddy discussion very fast when you go that. So we're explaining, saying, guys, this is tech investment. This is very volatile because you're marking to market, you know, but, but think of this as a VC investment. It, it's a project with a team with, uh, it's not really software, it's protocol. It's a little bit different, but it's, it's still a, a tech solution for a real world problem. Uh, but it's in there, it's in an early phase, right? So if you invested in Google in 2002 and still, you know, you're a VC and then, okay, Google has an agreement with eBay. Oh, stock prices go up. Uh, 
now oh the the, the agreement fell through oh uh stock prices go down you're, you're not marking to market because vc investments you know they have a cycle of six eight ten years in crypto you have that so if you know uh algorand has a new agreement with the australian government for doing this and that oh okay prices go up oh oh the agreement didn't go anywhere prices go down right so you're seeing that in real time but if you look at it as a tech investment for the long run uh you can be more comfortable and you have a level of upside that you normally won't have because the tech companies that you can invest in in the stock exchange they're mature uh i, I was discussing one of the you know i have a one of the good groups I have in WhatsApp is called Anti-Fragile. It's a, it's a group of some very interesting, intelligent folks in Brazil. And uh, and um, I, I said, you know, we don't discuss VCs or VC investing enough in Brazil or globally for that matter, because that's a very uh, tight, closed uh, group. You can't become an LP at Sequoia if you want to. It's not how it works. And that's where you know great the best opportunities are in the, the leading VCs. Like if you have, if you understand what a long-term investment is. So I think that's a beautiful part of crypto that democratizes that. You can be in the future of tech, you know, of a big a segment of tech. And I think it goes beyond the segment. I think it's this is fundamental tech, so it it affects everything. Uh and, and I think that that pitch stuck. People understood it. So there, so all of these waves came together, and of course, us working there and understanding. How these things connected? How you know investment advisors work? What's their mentality? So, uh, in that sense, you know our journey here in Europe or in the US is it looks like Brazil 2018-19 because you talk to the investment advisors, where are they at? Oh, the client knows more about crypto than the investment advisor, so the investment advisor doesn't want to talk about crypto. That's not the case anymore in Brazil because they were forced to learn over time. And they have the process and the client's coming to them. So, so they know that they, they, they can get around. And usually you go to a big, uh, you know, agente uh, autonomous from, from XP, they'll have some folks that, that really know crypto. And we have WhatsApp groups with these guys sending them news every day. And so they're in the loop. They know what's happening. Uh, here, uh, it's not there. And it's still like very retail driven in Europe and the US, very retail driven very independent and sort of against what the investment advisor wants. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's interesting yeah. how, how markets, they, they, they have different, you know, cycles of maturation. There. Yeah. It's what my, my, my dad's actually a financial advisor and I've been trying to yeah. you know, explain Bitcoin to him for, you know, seven, eight years now. And he, you know, <laughs> he, he thinks it's interesting, but he doesn't understand. And he's got a lot of clients. He's starting to get a lot of clients that are, you know, kind of my age and younger clients who are coming up and, you know, they're asking, yeah. you know, they're, you know, it's more of like, you know, DGen types that are like, oh, I'm long in Bitcoin and I'm long in crypto and I traded GameStop, GameStop back in the day, whatever. And, and I think the, some of the issue with, with financial advisors in the US, at least, is like, there's really no way that they could monetize this. It's, it's hard for them to monetize this type of client unless on, on a commission yeah. basis. So if they're yeah. offering more of like a retainer fee, you know, service model, um, that's fine. But, but generally, right. Like the, the client is going to know more. If the client's coming to the financial advisor with some sort of knowledge about crypto, they probably know more about crypto anyways. And yeah. there's not really a way for the advisor to monetize it um, uh, in the absence of a Bitcoin ETF, um, which, yeah. which leads me to my, you know, I'd like to kind of round this conversation out just by chatting a bit about your, uh, your efforts, both, both in the U S and in Europe, you know, really trying yeah. to expand hashtags presence beyond just Brazil. 
and yeah. um, and you've you know you've you've got a, a Bitcoin futures ETF in the U.S. now, um, and I mean the U.S. is I think as I think everybody understands at this point is maybe not the most favorable jurisdiction for this industry at the moment, um, but we do have this lawsuit, uh, this Grayscale lawsuit uh, suing the SEC trying to convert their GBTC product uh, into an ETF. Um, yeah. and I realize this is, I realize they're competitors of yours, but at the same time, if they, if they are successful, this would presumably open up some of the floodgates for, uh, you know, this backlog of, of Bitcoin ETF applications that we've had, we've seen over the last 10 years, really. Um, so I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on some of those yeah. developments yeah. and then also on, uh, you know, what you're working on in Europe too. Yeah, no, that's cool. So, so just a step back there. So, you know, I said, when we started, we started with the name in the US of, and, and the first one is the US and we always had a, a presence, uh, an, an American presence. Uh, Caratori actually, one of the co-founders was based in Palo Alto. He's now based in New York, but he worked in Gavia with uh, Arminio. Then he went to Stanford, just be, uh, worked in tech companies and just stay. So we, we always had the thing with the US, right? Uh, and and there was a, a, a you know, an interesting part of it which is, you know, being a Brazilian company and having a global ambition is something that was always very close to our heart and more than Brazilian, a real company. Uh, so although I'm, I'm kind of a Paulista, I was born in Belém, but I, you know, my family is also from Sao Paulo. I had law school in Sao Paulo, but I lived in Rio for 15 years and it's, it's my city uh, in the end. And, uh, and, and I think of, of really having, you know, big business coming out of the city and inspired by people like Jorge Paulo Lam and stuff like, now, guys that come from Rio and can really take over the world. So we really had that. And I think it's, you know, we, we love to see the Brazilian startups that, that go, go down that route. Uh, after we raised our Series A, which was, you know, 2021, we raised 26.5 million at the time. The idea is, you know, these resources are, of course, scaling Brazil and then expanding our footprint uh, in the U.S. and other places, right? So we started the work of, of building... Uh, you know, the, the branches and, and other places with a few different strategies, right? In the U.S., you know, if you're just going to uh, go head to head against a uh, grayscale, uh, oh, you're going to suffer. That they're you know they're twenty times their size, right? So uh, and, and they have a very strong local presence and stuff. So you're not going to hire a hundred people and, and compete. That does that's not how it works. So you need to come up with a different angle, right? In Europe, it's a little bit different because the market is very fragmented. So you can have good angles in different countries or different pockets within countries. So you go to Switzerland, Zurich is different from Geneva, it's different from Lugano. The UK is one thing, France is another, and, it, and the market hasn't been taken. So you can do like a proper normal work of, of biz dev and sales and launch products. So this is, I'd say, our approach in Europe is more traditional in that sense. Uh, and in the US, it forcefully has to be more creative for us to have a shot of, 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 you know, becoming something big. And then, uh, you know, as we were looking into things, uh, we started the discussion uh, early, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe like a, a year and a half ago around the 33 Bitcoin Act, uh, Bitcoin Futures ETF, 33 Act Bitcoin Futures ETF, which didn't exist at the time. Right, so we partnered up with uh, Tidal and and uh, Tilcrim, we're two big uh, ETF issuers, and uh, and we created uh, that one, the hashtags Bitcoin Futures ETF, which is the only one of its kind. And uh, 
And how does this tie you up with the grayscale thing? So there are four uh, Bitcoin futures ETFs in the U.S. now. Uh, three under the 40 Act, uh, which is Beto, uh, the one from Valkyrie and the one from Vanek, so very similar, and ours. Ours is the only 33 Act ETF. Uh, there are a couple of important distinctions, different tax treatment. Our ETF is not leveraged, so we buy just the futures. Uh, the others, they need to buy 25% of a Cayman sub and then you know exposures through leverage. It's a, it's, a, it's a very complicated structure. But the most important thing is that 40 Act uh, trusts, uh, you know, ETFs, they can't hold anything but securities, right, as, as a general note. 33 acts are the structures that you use, for instance, for commodity ETFs, wheat, gold, uh, you know, mining in general, uh, mining and, and commodities in general, right? Uh, so the 40 act ETFs, they can never hold, they can never be transformed into a Bitcoin ETF, Bitcoin spot ETF, because it just doesn't fit into the rule. The 33 act uh, Bitcoin futures ETF, Theoretically, it can hold things that are commodities, and, and that's the closest that Bitcoin comes to. We know Bitcoin is not a security, right? So, uh, so when we looked at that, I said, okay, so there's an angle here to be explored. Of course, this is the work that requires a lot of conversations with regulators, and that you need to go back and forth and timing, and there's there's a whole background discussion of things that are happening in DC. Uh, regulation around the exchanges, how these things play out. So uh, the way we were thinking about it up until a few months ago was that this, you know, there would only be space and given how the SEC was denying all, all you know, applications for, uh, for new crypto Bitcoin ETFs in general, uh, that approval would only come after federal legislation regulating exchanges. And then the argument around the underlying market not being regulated, that would disappear. Uh, you'll probably have the, you know, the Killers Limited Brand, uh, limited brand uh, Bill being approved, uh, authority being given to the CFTC to regulate crypto exchanges. And then you know, after a few months, probably the SEC will be in a position to approve a spot ETF. So, so this was how we were thinking about it. Uh, the grayscale lawsuit changes things a little bit. Uh, first, you know, if you read market commentary before going in, it was largely against uh, grayscale. People thought, oh, this is not going to work, right? But in that hearing, you saw the judges were very sympathetic to some of the arguments made, uh, actively challenging the SEC's lawyers, saying, you know, this argument that the market is different. How can you say the market is different if prices are together 99.5% of the time? And and this is true. Uh, I mean, it, even though uh, I mean, let's let's you know frame it differently. Even though they are different markets, the futures and the spot markets, the futures markets they move in tandem with spot most of the time. So if you have manipulation in the spot, that spills over into futures even if you're not manipulating futures, right? So the SEC has been taking this like kind of semi-technical convoluted approach of blocking based on this, 
I think a lot of it based on waiting for actual legislation to come out and having more clarity around crypto exchanges and so on and so forth. And there's a little bit of a turf for it there with the CFTC, right? Uh, so when you see the judges having that position, like the odds change, you probably saw in Bloomberg, a lot of the commentary coming, oh, now we think it's 70-30 in favor of, of Grayscale. Um, and that's you know fine and dandy, but one thing being missed is that uh, judges, they can be very sympathetic to the argument that the, the markets are, this, are, are essentially the same. Uh, you could have a victory for Grayscale, but that in the end ends up being a, a Pyrrhic victory. Uh, because, you know, it's, it doesn't mean that a decision, it depends a lot on the wording of the decision, but it doesn't mean that a decision would be like, SEC, approve this. Uh, it would probably be uh, Grayscale, you can refile SEC, you cannot use that argument. Or, you know, reassess your, your you know, your latest files or your latest projections, right? Uh, and then the SEC probably couldn't say that the markets are different. They had like three other, three or four other arguments that are not really, they're more like product specific related. They're not, uh, you know, they're not what's in this discussion now with the lawsuit. And Grayscale was very uh, uh, smart to position the discussion as being spot versus futures. What they left out is that there, have ne there has never been a conversion of an entity like uh, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust into an ETF. And this is a major thing. Oh, really? And I didn't realize that. that that's, that's never, there's no precedent for that happening. They're, they're there's, there's no precedent. That kind of trust, you know, so it's, it's essentially a reporting company. It was an emerging growth company. So it's, it's like a reporting company. Won't get into the technicalities, but, you know, if you look at the, the exchange they trade, OTC2X, that's where they trade like the, the pink sheets, right? So, so it's like, GBTC looks a lot like just a company uh, that has, uh, that buys Bitcoin, right? And uh, it, and it's not a, a, it's not an ETF, right? And it, because you don't have the, uh, the redemption, the redemptions can happen. And that's why you, you have the, the premium and the discount. Uh, and there's several other companies that have the structure that if you if you if the SEC would allow GBTC to be converted directly into an ETF, you create a very strange precedent because you have trusts like these that buy art or buy wine or have other stuff that could theoretically be converted into an ETF. So, you know, the SEC can say, okay, I, I can't make that argument, but your corporate structure doesn't work. Come back, like do your homework, come back. And it doesn't mean that it's a dead end, but you can go into some very strange corporate discussions around, oh, maybe you need a, an ETF that's already running and that will merge into this one, or you're gonna need approvals. from. So it's not that clear cut that a decision, a, a decision that looks positive from Grayscale, for Grayscale would result into fast, conversion of GBTC. Uh, and what it does what it does do is that it opens a window. You can get into a window in which you have the SEC prevented from blocking filings 
mentioning futures markets are different than spot, but uh, they could assess other filings, right? So it's it's going to be. I, I think you know it's very hard to say what's going to happen. Uh, if if you can you know have a precedent is when you when Beetle was launched when the first ATF, I know we were following that very closely and Beetle like they won like for it was a detail they 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 got the first one out and it was ten times the almost the size of the second one because they were I think it was literally like three days three or four days before the first one before the second one and then the third one was the tenth of that so. Uh, it came down to the details of the filing of, you know, small things into the product. So we might have a race like that again uh, for the spot. Okay. So, so this is, uh, and I think it's very healthy for the market that, that it opens up for new wishers uh, so that if GBTC is at some point indeed converted, it's not the sole large Bitcoin ETF. It's better for investors, if you have a couple of large ones, like you have a couple of large S&P 500 ETFs, and then you go into price wars and, you know, what's the, the product that tracks? Is it the Vanguard product? Is it the BlackRock product? Which one tracks BNX better? And, and you see what happens in equities products. It's like these large ETFs, they trade exactly on the index, like one BIP of difference or zero BIPs of difference. They have zero fees. And so, uh, but if you have one single gorilla without the AUM, that becomes harder for the others to pick traction. So uh, another issue we're coming up and having the first mover advantage in spot, that presents a good challenge for when GBTC is actually converted. And that's where, you know, that's where we'd like to be in. Like, uh, but this is very, uh, there's, a bit, there's a big component of work, but there's a big component of luck and everything that yeah. goes in there. There's no guarantee this year. Yeah, yeah so. Yeah, so it sounds like you have to position yourself for, you know, four to five different scenarios that that all yeah. seem, you know, potentially like equally plausible, right, in terms yeah. of probability. Yeah. And but it almost seems like the best case scenario for hashtags here or for, um, you know, for I guess, you know, specifically for, hashtags, specifically for hashtags would be a ruling in the GBTC case that doesn't just give, uh, you know, it's basically telling GBTC to like refile they're telling Grayscale to refile. It's telling the yeah. SEC that they, they can't use this. Um, you know, oh, there's too much manipulation in the spot market, so we have to deny this. Yeah. Uh, then, yeah. But then why do you have why do you have a futures market or why do you have why are you greenlighting futures ETFs if the underlying yeah. spot markets are, are manipulated? Yeah. They can't use this argument anymore. And that and then it becomes kind of a race to okay, everybody is going to submit their filings at the same time. Everyone's going to have these filings ready to go submitting them, yeah. you know, and then, but you guys already have your 33 futures ETF that you might be able to potentially, you know, have a head start yeah. in that sense because you can convert that. Uh, and that might give you a head yeah. start. Over we, uh, from that, that, that's one thing that we have in, in that's very good is that we have an ETF running and, you know, so of course this is a process too. You're going to ask for changes in investment policy. So these things are very like, not guaranteed. I think after we had, when we were launching the IDTF, after we had the approval from the SEC and until it went live, it took an extra like maybe two months, just in two or three months, three months, I think it was three months, just in, I think there were like 15 interactions and in formal interactions. I mean, requests coming and going saying, 
change this, add that, clarify this, change that. So one thing is approving the product theoretically. The other thing is when it's ready to go live. Uh, you have uh, the 19 before, which is the letter from the exchange. And so there's several things along the path. Uh, and uh, and uh, so it's going to be a race anyways, because it won't be, even if, if the decision is very, very positive for, for GBTC, it doesn't mean that the following day GBTC is ready to trade as an ETF. And in that window, uh, you know, the effect of the decision will be an effect that should be applied to the whole market uh, for consistency. And actually, uh, you know, the arguments of, of Grayscale are under the APA, the Administrative Procedures Act, which say, says that you can't treat the same situation differently. If you have the same situation, you have to treat them uh, in the same way. So if you have another filing for, for spot, they can't give a favorable treatment to, to Grayscale. They'll look at all the issues as the same thing. So there's going to be a race anyways. And it's going to be fun. <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to be fun. We're going to have some exciting times. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, but that's a, that's a, you know, one of the big things for, for the West though, right now for us is, is that, you know, is how these things play out. And we've been careful enough in the past to, uh, put pressure in the markets that we thought merited at that time where we would spend the money. Well, you know, a lot of, you know, we are, we are, we are a startup. We have the startup mentality. Uh, you really need to be mindful of, you know, cash burn and, and, and things like that. You can't just say, oh, I'm, uh, no, I'm going all in when you don't have an actual possibility of just, uh, you know, breaking everything. You, you need product market fit. You need good angles. You, you need all those things. So we, we've timed the U.S., I think, quite right in the sense of not over, overextending ourselves. And hopefully this is, this might be something that if, if we pull off, it's, a, it's of course, a you know, game changer for us. And, and we'd be super happy with that and, and having that leadership position in the U.S. as well, just, just like we have in Brazil. Right? Yeah, I think it's a great kind of concluding point, which is really that you're, you know, you're, you're, you're idealistic in your ambitions, but you're, you're being pragmatic and like, look, like at the, at the moment, there's really not much we can do aside from just kind of sit on the sidelines and be ready to pounce when the opportunity arises. Um, you know, there's, there's no point in just sort of, you know, people have been just like, you know, submitting ETF proposals for years and just constantly getting rejected and rejected and rejected. There's no reason to expect that to change without some kind of, you know, uh, tectonic shift of sorts with this, which this GBTC lawsuit, um, you know, could provide. I think, you know, the market would like it to provide. Uh, but in the meantime, you're focusing on, on, on kind of expanding into other markets in Europe, uh, you know, kind of really doubling down in, in Brazil, your home market. Um, and uh, kind of waiting out, you know, to see what other opportunities open up elsewhere. So, um, yeah. but with that, anyway, I'd love to, you know, just kind of get your final thoughts here on, um, you know, any kind of prognostication you have for the, like just the Brazil kind of market generally over the rest of the year, um, yeah. particularly that we have, and do we really touch on kind of Brazil uh, regulation or anything as of yet, but, you know, just now that we've got a regulatory process in the works, and uh, a licensing regime in the works. Uh, there's a bit more, you know, kind of stability in the market here. Uh, we'd just love to get your your kind of super quick take on uh, what do you see happening in this market uh, the rest of the year. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think Brazil's in a good state. There's there's a, a lot of sophistication in the you know, in crypto regulation in Brazil. I think 
uh, people were able to develop their businesses. Of, of course, you had you had like steps back and forward. You saw that you know the CVM uh, not order, but CVM statement around uh, the fixed income assets. You know the tokens. They, these things they create a little friction, uh, but the ecosystem in general is healthy. I think uh, what affects us more than actually uh, just just state regulation, which I think. It's like in a positive trend and will continue to, to, to probably go in the right path is actually access to funding. Uh, you know, Brazil is picking up uh, as, you know, a key player in the VC world uh, being, you know, attempt like the darling of, of VC funds for a couple of years and Brazil, especially around that. Uh, and everything that happened in the VC world in the past year or so, that really hurts the ability of a lot of Brazilian entrepreneurs to have easy access to capital. So you're going to need better projects from the start. And it's, it's a, a bit of an unfair thing because access to VC money is not, it's not based on merit. You know, there's a, there's a little game that you have to play and, and uh, that you know, need to know how to understand to, to, to navigate that most investors don't have. I mean, we have this because that was back. That was Marcelo's background. That was Caratori's background, being California. So we knew the ins and outs of, of you know the large VC funds and how they think. So I think that's the you know that choke point on on capital. That's a big thing. There's only so far you can go with friends and family money or your own money, and and you know a lot of the reason that U.S. tech companies have taken the predominance they have is is because you have the VC ecosystem working so well. So, so I think that's a big concern for this year, uh, not only for new projects, but things that already exist and maybe folks are, are you know, running out of runway uh, because market fit is not there yet perfectly, but their product is cool. So I, I think that's, you know, where uh, the VC ecosystem in Brazil should really gather up and, and try to protect the cool projects and, and make them see because sometimes they don't need a lot of money. They, they just need, you know, something more to keep the lights on for, for six, eight, ten months until things, uh, until the tides turn. So I'd say that's a concern. Uh, but in terms of, you know, projects, we're seeing some cool stuff coming. Brazil is very good at that. I, you know, if I could end it with something, I'd say uh, it's we need to be ambitious. Uh, we need to understand how capable we are of building global businesses, of uh, of having a real presence outside of Brazil, and it doesn't mean Argentina or Uruguay, which is like the trend of the, oh, we're gonna expand, we're gonna expand into Latam. No, Latam's great. I I lived in Paraguay, Venezuela, Argentina. I love these countries. We have a product in Chile with BTG. This is good, but I'm, I'm talking about trying to make it in the in the big leagues. And because then it's you know, different stakes, a different game, different volumes, different size, different everything. And I'm not saying that we were an inspiration at all. I'm just saying that we're following the footsteps of guys like Brex. Right? So go outside of crypto and see that like, you know, Brex has taken over the U.S. corporate credit card market. You know, it's, you know, a couple of kids from Brazil, you know, so it's like there's a way, there's a path forward. And, and, you know, if you go to the addressable market, that's 50 times the size of Brazil or 100 times the size of Brazil when you combine, combine a couple of countries, your access to funding changes, you know, your revenues change. Of course, 
you need a level of sophistication that, that you know you maybe don't have if you're just operating out of Sao Paulo or, or Rio, right? So uh, I'd say, you know, sometimes we're expecting uh, results to change out of the will of the government or just like that. It, it's up to us entrepreneurs to to really, you know, go after the big leagues and, and the big thing. And I know, you know, the 3G guys, they, they took a lot of heat for Americanos and stuff. Uh, but like, you can never forget that these guys came out of Rio to buy Enhauser Bush, to buy Heinz, uh, to buy Burger King, like real references in global capitalism and owned by Brazilian guys today. I think, you know, it's, it's about time that we, we shut aside this complex and, and, and really go after the big things. Of course, then it's around, this is the stage that we're in now, which is like hedge your bets, be careful. You know, you know, a, a, a person in my team here probably costs three, four times uh, uh, what, what it costs in Brazil. So it's a very different game, uh, but there is space. There is space, and, and I feel it when I talk to people here, how impressed they are of what's, by what's happening in Brazil, by what's happening in crypto in Brazil, how, how they appreciate the importance and how sophisticated our market is. I, I, think that's, you know, I think that's the closing message for crypto entrepreneurs in Brazil is like, you know, trust what we're doing because we're in the right path and I just have to double down the efforts. Awesome. Well, that's well said, much better articulated than I could have done so myself. So, so thank you for that. <laughs> uh, so listen, Bruno, really great conversation. I learned a lot here. Uh, we'd love to have you back on again sometime soon. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe once we get some more updates on the, on the, on the ETF situation, in the U S the GBTC situation, yeah. we'll have you back on. Um, no, really appreciate great. your time. Uh, really great having you. Where can folks uh, find you if they want to get in touch? Uh, Twitter. I think Twitter is a good one. Uh, BRS uh, hashtags. Uh, so Awesome. Great, great. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Bruno. And uh, thanks everyone for watching. And uh, we'll see you next time. All right. See ya. Thanks. Obrigado, everyone. And thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the Brazil Crypto Report newsletter on Substack if you haven't already. And please do give the show a five-star rating on your podcast app if you enjoyed this content. We'll be back soon with another great guest.